You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 2, Imagining the Future. All right, so today we're going to talk about imagining the future. So Jim here is a content expert on imagination, correct? That's right. I run a lab called the Science of Imagination Laboratory, which sounds like Disney World, but it's just people on computers. (laughs) Well, they could be in Disney World in their brains. Yes, right. True. They could be imagining. I should encourage them to do that while they get their thesis done. I should bring my kids in. All right. So we're going to talk today about imagining the future. And I guess to start out with, is there something different about the way that we think about the past versus the future? Yeah. The uh, first of all, humans are some of the only creatures that we know of that can actually imagine different times. It's the frontal lobe. Is it? It's our time-traveling device. Our ta- well, other creatures have frontal lobes, though, don't they? Uh, not to the same extent as not right. homo well, sapiens. So I think yeah. there's some... Some th- can sig- think about the past, like corvids. Yeah. So right. corvids, yeah. Uh, the, for everybody else, those are crows, basically. So yeah. crows can maybe think about... They can think about. They can imagine the past. Maybe they can think about the future. But for the most part, humans are the only ones who can who can do it for sure and, mm-hmm. and to and to a great extent. Um, but the uh, the past we imagine in a different way. We, often, when we imagine the past, it's more detailed. So when we imagine things in the future, it's more stereotyped. So if you think about like a birthday party, for example, it's. Um, you tend to imagine a generic birthday party. So a generic birthday party has kids and cake and mm-hmm. maybe even a clown. You might not have ever even seen a birthday party with a clown, but it might be part of your prototype. Right. right? Um, but, of course, there are a zillion kinds of birthday parties. You can have a birthday party at a strip club. You can have a birthday party <laughs> at, a, uh, you know, at a beach. You know, but, but when people yeah. imagine a birthday party in the future, it tends to not be one of those. It tends to be the prototypical one. Huh. And the farther in the future you ask them to imagine the more stereotyped it is. Now, you might think, well, okay, if they're imagining one in the past, they're probably imagining a specific birthday party, so of course they're going to be details. Right. But that's not it either, because you can. Uh, they did an experiment where they said to somebody, imagine a car accident All right. that happened two weeks ago. So it's completely made up. It's not a car accident that they actually experienced or read about two weeks ago. They're just making it up. But the... You know the the version the people who were asked to imagine the car accident happening in the past imagined it in a more detailed, less stereotyped way. So even if you ask them, imagine a, a car accident two weeks from the from now. If you ask, yeah, if you imagine it happening two weeks really? from now, it's more stereotyped. That's wild. Yeah. So why is that? What like why like is there any explanation why? I've Are, never heard. Of, I've there's there's more rich detail with the past. Yeah, but that wouldn't make sense with with you're just making it up. So I don't really know what it is. I don't know why it is. I don't think anybody does. Because as a neuroscientist, it's the same circuitry, more or less, right? Right. But it, I guess, maybe with the past, you're accessing. Well, yeah, like you said, even imagining stuff that hasn't happened. Yeah, I think it's pretty mysterious at this point. Mystery. Yeah. So, then, what about like with our emotions? Can we, when we, like, if you ask somebody, like, you know, imagine two weeks ago, you know, this awful thing happened versus imagine something awful happening in the future. Is there a difference there? You know, I've never seen that study. I haven't, I've not well, seen the study. What I, what, I, <laughs> what I have seen is uh, asking people to imagine the, how emotional they'll feel in the future. 
Okay. And this they get wrong all the time. And they get it wrong in the way that they, they assume that they're going to have a stronger emotion in the future. Oh, yes. I've seen these studies. Yeah. Used to so, teach them in psych. Yes. They're yeah. very, they're very, uh, they're pretty robust. And uh, the book Stumbling on Happiness talks a lot about them, which is a great book if you want to read about this. But um, people, for better and worse, for good and bad emotions, mm. they tend to think that the uh, emotional impact of things in the future are going to be way bigger than they actually end up being. So... Everything from uh, winning the lottery to losing five pounds to, you know, moving to California to uh, uh, getting, you know, you know, getting losing the use of your legs. All of these things, people think that they're going to have a big change in their emotional state. OK, but they actually in, but people who actually go through these things don't change much at all. I think it's a, it's kind of a focus thing, because when you're only thinking about one thing and you decide it's not good, then you're going to think, oh, uh, it's bad, so I'm going to be miserable, right? right? Forgetting that most of what makes you happy is a, a million but it, things. But doesn't also have to do with your state happiness, right? So people who have, like, who are baseline levels of happiness are, let's say, a hundred versus somebody whose baseline levels of happiness are fifty. People who are at a hundred, they actually, even if they, you know, have like a death of a spouse, for example. They will still be at 100 10 years from now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Death of spouse, I think, is an exception. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the few things that actually does mess you up for a very long time. Oh, really? But losing your job and other things. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to go into happiness too much, but yes, yeah. basically you're right that people yeah. do have a set level of happiness. It's very hard to budge right. over time. But what you're saying is that we're ultimately very bad at predicting our emotions. We're bi- well, yeah. We're, we overestimate it. We overestimate. General, right? So, okay. Um, and another thing we do is because of this focus, they tend you tend to focus on just like the one thing that represents to you the overall impression of it. So, for example, mm-hmm. we could take something that somebody thinks is fun, mm-hmm. like what's something you think is fun. Like if I said, "Hey, let's go do this," that eat, was fun. Well, eat ketchup chips. Eat ketchup chips. Okay. So if I said, "Hey, you want to go eat ketchup chips?" <laughs> for those of you in the United States, Canada eats. <laughs> Ketchup flavored <laughs> potato chips. Okay, this fabulous. is this was a revelation for me when I arrived here. So for our American listeners, it's real. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> anyway, when you think about that, what the, the primary emotion you probably have is, or you imagine the pleasure of it yeah. and the happiness you feel, uh-huh. and you probably don't think about the fact that your foot might hurt at that time, or right. that that your kid might be screaming uh-huh. at that time, or right, right, right. that you are already full and you're eating more than you want. And all those things could happen, but those details tend to get washed away. So this mm. happens with stuff. It's very uh, big with something like uh, like going on a hike or something like that. So you'll you'll ima- you, if you like hiking, right? You might imagine the beautiful views and the you know being out in the fresh air and whatever. And you don't think about getting rained on and losing your tent and, or you know you don't think about all the sore feet, the yeah or the things that might happen. Right. You know, so every time you go on a hike, there are little things that go wrong, but people don't think of those. And then the same thing happens with bad things. So like going to the dentist right. or doing the laundry, right? So they'll they'll say, oh, how happy do you think you'd be doing the laundry? Well, people think, oh, laundry's boring and stupid and I hate it and I'd be miserable the whole time. But not every aspect of doing the laundry is miserable, right? There's the nice feeling of warm sheets on your hands when you pull them out of the dryer and the smell is sometimes nice. And You know, I'm starting to get this, this like maybe this has some adaptive... Um, it might be adaptive to overfocus on the positive and overfocus on the negative because we, as humans, we want to, or as an organ, you know, basic species, you want to, you're attracted to things that are going to be good for you and increase your 
chances of survival, and we tend to avoid things that. So you think simplifying it might yeah. make well it might make yeah. it might make it easier to make a decision. Like if your yes, mind exactly. assumes it's an overall good thing, yeah, then yeah, why yeah. bother with the right. complication? Right. I mean, that, that, that's yeah. totally possible. Just thinking um, out loud here. No, no, that's fine. So yeah, you know, but, but but the thing you know, uh, also if you ask people how they'd feel if they moved to California, so this is something I use here in Ottawa, where we have six months of winter. You know, if you ask somebody how would you, how happy would you be if you moved to California, they usually say, "Oh, I'd be deliriously happy. All oh, the palm trees and the beach yeah. and the sun." Um, but of course, you know, they they're just thinking of the weather, and that, and of course, the weather's better in California. Right. So they think. And since they're focusing on that, they think they would be happier. But then the studies show that weather affects your happiness very little. Interesting. So can you make yourself happier by thinking about how your life could be worse? Yeah. So this is something that they teach in Buddhism and stuff, right? They'll oh, say, yeah. like, imagine what it's. Imagine if you didn't have legs or imagine if you, uh, you couldn't talk or imagine if you um, were blind or you were alone or something. And, and thinking about that makes you, can make you grateful and appreciate and appreciate what you have, which makes you happier. So that's called a downward comparison. So if I'm there thinking, oh, what if my, you know, if I was blind or something, I can I can be grateful for the blindness. Now, the opposite is also true. That's called an upward, upward. comparison, right? So an upward comparison is is thinking like, oh, what if I had more friends? What if people liked me more? What if people I had a do this all the time? Pro- oh, what if do. I lost ten pounds? What if I won the lottery? What right. if what if I got an A plus? So in general. Yeah. Doing upward comparisons makes you More feel bad about yourself. Now, there is, a, there is a um, an interesting caveat to this, or like an exception, is that with some some downward comparisons make you miserable or make you anxious or something. Like so what? I'll give you an example. So my yeah. mother, when I was a kid, I was in the car in the back seat with my sister. This is the United States in the 80s, so no, nobody wore a seatbelt, right? She was thinking of pulling out past a car she couldn't see to make better time or whatever decided not to do it and then immediately a gigantic truck drove right where she would have been oh geez okay did that make her now does that make her happy no, no. she was terrified Frantic. that she almost killed yeah. herself and her family and her children right so why well, shouldn't she be happy because she's doing a downward comparison well it turns out that if you can really identify a lot yeah. with the person in the story or the imagining yeah. sometimes it can make you anxious because you feel like right. that could happen to me or could have been me so if i hear like a story about a professor who goes down in flames you know yeah. i i might be grateful that it's not me but at the same time i'm like oh that's how it might happen that's how it might happen to me right so like that's, well, if, if you really are imagining not having those legs and you see so see somebody well, they lose their legs because they do much too much cognitive science, right? So then I, I get, <laughs> I get really, you know, I can upset. That might happen to me, right? So I, I, to me, it's like that's amygdala activating. You're activating the brain region that's involved in predicting fear, right? So when you do that, it actually. So is the amygdala the anxiety area mm, too, or just yeah, fear? Yeah, fear, anxiety. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're all kind of regulated in there. So, kind of a topic twist this makes me all think about like time in general right so how do we think about time so time yeah so we time is a very abstract thing and it's very hard for people to think about abstract stuff so what our mind does is that it it casts abstract things in terms of concrete things that we understand really well Mm -hmm. so generally in time time we think of in terms of space and this is really easy, like if you look at a graph, the yeah. plot on the usually the x-axis going left to right in mm-hmm. our culture is time. And that's very intuitive for us, right? 
So um, a really good exercise I like to do is I ask, I say to somebody, hey, there's a meeting on Wednesday and it got, it got pushed back two days. Okay. Is it on Monday or Friday? Monday, obvi. Okay, so, so people actually disagree on this. Oh. So some people think pushing it back it makes it on Friday, and some people think pushing it back is on Monday. And it turns out that you can predict which one they're going to think depending on their metaphorical understanding of time, how they think about time in space. So some people think about time like, or let's, let's just say like time's like water, okay? Yeah. And you're standing in a river and water's flowing over you. So this idea is that you're sort of standing still and time is flowing over you. Right? You're just sort of standing there, time's flowing past you. Got it. That's like everybody, I think, can sort of intuitively understand that metaphor. Yeah. If that's the case, pushing it back pushes it away from you. Right. To Friday. That must okay. be me. No, I'm the other one. Now, on the other hand, if you think of time as a pool of water you're wading through, yeah, and you are the active participant. Yes, yes. Okay. And it's going to be the opposite. Now, I think people differ in their traits like this. So like some people are, they think of time as moving and, or they think of themselves as moving, but they've also found that people, the same people in different situations change their conception of time depending on how active they are. So they they did a study where they asked people this, you know, when's, when's the meeting? At the beginning of a line, like a queue, mm-hmm. right, to pick up a ticket or something versus the end. Now, when you, now everyone knows what it feels like to be at the end of a long line. You feel like you're making no progress. You're mm-hmm. not going mm-hmm. anywhere. Time is just flowing over you. You have no autonomy. Mm-hmm. When you're near the front of the line, you feel like you're getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. People's, people gave different answers if they're in the front or the back of the line. That's wild. Yeah. So it, and this is a prevalent in all kinds of abstract thought. But, you know, yeah, we do tend to think of like time is, is in space. So when you say like we're, we're, you know, we're, we're pushing the meeting back, you should, everybody should understand that n- that means something different to it means something different to different people. That's why I would I would have never thought that. I would have thought everybody would think pushing it back means Monday. Because it's back in time. <laughs> uh, so you said that we um, we do tend to think about the past differently, right, than the future, mm-hmm. right? Where yeah. in the future we less detail, whereas in the past we have more detail. Right. So when in that does that mean that we're that lack of detail for thinking about the future, does this make us bad at planning? It does. It does. So because we don't think about the details of what could go wrong, we consistently assume nothing's going to go wrong. So how long does it take you to print out a paper? <laughs> well, it takes 10 seconds. You just click print and there it is, yeah. right? Like you're that's, out of ink, you're out of paper, there's a jam. It's the wrong file format. Yeah. You don't think about that stuff. So people think when they think about something, doing something in the future – they tend to think about an idealized version of how long it's going to take. This is so funny because my my postdoc mentor, mm-hmm. one of the wisest pieces of advice she said to me was always, the best predictor of how busy you're going to be in six months is how busy you are now. That is so wise. Yes, it is wise because I find, I fall, even in spite of knowing this, mm-hmm. I fall into this trap where somebody, I'll get asked to speak at a conference or I'll get asked to do this, this, and this three months down the road, two weeks down the road, six months down the road. And I'm always like, oh, look, like I've my got schedule's this, open. my schedule's like, why? I'm not doing anything I'm that week. so free. Wrong. No. Right? right. So the time comes right. and it's like, I've got this, yeah, life. Life happens and life. people forget that, right? Yeah. So it, if you want to get around this, it's really good to think about how long it took you in the past. 
Think about a specific yeah. instance of printing something out or getting a paper written or. But can we even do that? Yeah, well, sure. You can. You can for, train you can, yourself you, to do that. Well, you can. You can. You can just like force yourself to think about a time when you drove to, right. drove to Toronto and what happened, and say, oh, you know, maybe it doesn't take exactly yeah, may- five hours. You know, you 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 just sort of. Yeah. It just helps you calibrate, right? Right, right. And I guess we do get better with. Um, mm, well, mm. I think I think it takes constant vigilance because I think it's a really yeah. easy thing to slip into, and and you can also use this to your advantage when you ask people favors. So when I wrote my first book, I asked somebody, like I said, "Hey, would you be willing to write me a foreword?" The book will be done in about six months, and they mm-hmm. were like, "Oh yeah." Now, if I said, "Would you do it tomorrow?" They'd say no. Absolutely, uh, they'd say no. So you can actually take advantage of people who don't know this by asking them to commit their future selves. Sneaky. So, when you're thinking again about the future, right? The future is less concrete. Yeah. How so? How would this affect? Can you think of some other like how? What are some examples of how that might yeah, affect? Yeah. So, like, so imagination. You can imagine abstract things like justice and feelings and that kind of thing, but we're better at imagining what you might call concrete objects, things that have a sensory. Mm. Uh, experience things that look like something like a like a racquetball hmm. or something like that versus these abstract things. Um, and so, when you ask people things like, "Would you rather have depression or diabetes?" It's very hard to imagine with a sensory image what being depressed is like. Yeah. Right? It doesn't look like anything to be depressed. Yeah. Like, I mean, you can come up with something, but it's not. It's not the same as diabetes with the. Insulin. The insulin, the shots, and the and the measuring your blood sugar. Yeah, constantly mm-hmm. poking yourself mm-hmm. with needles and dialysis. Mm-hmm. That it's very easy to come up with that, and it's very easy to look at that and think, I don't want that. Right? It turns out that depression is much more debilitating than diabetes. And but I like, I would definitely say di- diabetes. Why? Because I know it, like I've well, never been depressed, but I'm a like. Well, you're a trained uh, person on the mind and so the brain, right? So. But, but <laughs> like, I guess my doesn't matter how much you know. Of course it does. Oh, yes, yeah. of course it okay. does. Of course it does. I so, mean, this is this is just an example, but okay. like you know, if you, um, uh, I I don't know, like you can imagine uh, something very abstract, like getting the approval of somebody versus getting an Xbox. I don't know. Like, like, uh, yeah, yeah. right. So the more right, concrete right. it is, it's easier to trigger your emotions with right. it because right. and trigger your, your idea of, yes, I want that. No, I don't. If it's more concrete. Right. Hmm. Hmm. So when we think about ourselves in the future, this like amorphous, less concrete, are we thinking about that future self as a different person? Yeah, we kind of are. We kind of are. And people differ in this. So we, the, they found that some people are more future oriented and some people are more present oriented. Yeah. And what what this ends up the ramifications of this are that people treat their future self kind of like as, as a different person. So you can like offload work to them or weight loss or hmm. uh, anything else, right? And this is also makes us bad planners because the farther in the future we're planning something, the more crap we're willing to load onto our future selves. Some people. Well, some people more than others, but everybody discounts the future a yeah, little yeah, bit, right? Yeah. So it's just a matter of how much. So every time, let's say, like, I don't know anybody who's trying to gain weight, but like, you know, let's just say you were trying to lose weight or something. Um, you know, eating eating an ice cream sundae now is pleasurable now, and you don't actually pay the cost of that. 
Like your future self pays the cost mm-hmm. of that. And if you don't, if you're not really connected, feeling connected with your future self, then it's very easy to do that. Same with spending money. Do we tend to like idealize that future self? Like that future self is like a, a way better version of the present self? I don't know if people think about it much at all, but they, but they don't, they don't really, the more, if you actually think about your future self, what you're going to be like in 10 years, yeah. the more you, like they've shown that if you make people think about that yeah. picture, what your life is going to be like, yeah. uh, then they do get like more of a, um, you know, a more of a connection to the future self and they don't, and they don't discount the future quite as much. So they did a study where they said, Hey, would you like to see a, a kind of boring lecture across the hallway yeah. or really interesting lecture all the way across town? Yeah. Now, if you ask them about it tomorrow, they'll go across the hallway. And if you ask them for a year from now, they'll say, I'll take the interesting one across town. Because that interesting person is much more, or the interesting lecture a year from now, that person is going to be more motivated to go across town. Well, what happens is that, well, they, they think they will be, but then, of course, like you're planning, yeah. like we were talking about, yeah. overcommitting yourself. By the time that time comes, you're like, why did I commit to this? Yeah. This is a pain. I don't yeah. want to do this. So uh, there is this tendency that when people think about the future, they tend to um, imagine the desirability of it. So the farther it is in the future, they think about the desirability of the outcome and Mm -hmm. not so much about the cost. But if it's happening now or really soon, they think more about the cost, right? So Netflix had this problem. Netflix used to have this big queue. Yes, I hated the Netflix queue. And you'd put things in your queue and it ended up being a queue of ambitious movies, movies you think you should watch someday in the future. But Netflix got rid of it because no one watched the movies they put in their queue. Yes, yes, yes. And it's exactly this psychological effect. They were like, I should watch that documentary on this and that. But then when you're sitting down after a hard day's work, you you want to watch Caddyshack or or The Heat (laughs) or something. You don't want to watch this like documentary on dolphins getting killed that, you know, yourself two weeks ago thought you should watch, right? So Netflix got rid of it. this, This future person sounds amazing. They sound like they got they got their life in control and they're wise and they're going to interesting <laughs> lectures and they're losing weight. And they have time to do they everything. Have time to Look do at their all. schedule. Like <laughs> have you heard this though, um, that people so like uh, you said people are more likely I think about the the present or the future, yeah. but there's also people who dwell on the past. And there's kind of a theory that people who are overthinking about the past are more likely to be depressed and people who overthink the future are more likely to be anxious. I have have not heard that. That's really interesting. And then, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with like um, some of the practices of Buddhism meditation uh, are all about the present, right? Right. And and that's the key. And and meditation is also, and mindfulness is about like listening to your body right now. Mm -hmm. And that uh, Eckhart Tolle wrote the book the power of now and all about how happiness is is embodying the space and the and where we are right now because i think you know from what i'm hearing there are these traps particularly with future thinking and like i've heard you know in my field like uh, people who dwell in the past and Mm -hmm. can't get over like traumatic events that's leads to depressive thinking so yeah so i i think there's a lot of truth to that um the research on mindfulness in building happiness is there's a lot of bad research out there and it's so it's the jury's i think still out on whether it actually works what? but there but there are other yeah on work on works on what people <laughs> making them happier you mean not dogs <laughs> well Make it's hard dog? to have a, it's hard to have a control condition right it's hard to it's hard to give someone 
a placebo of mindful of mindfulness meditation that can't they just sit quietly and not focus okay so this is this is where it gets into really so meditation is different so mindfulness is only one kind of meditation right there are many kinds yeah often when people talk about mindfulness meditation they're They're actually doing focused meditation if you're focusing on your breath yes to the exclusion of everything else yeah that is very different from uh, observing every thought that passes through you and letting it go. Okay, I feel right? like this is a future... It could be a whole other episode, but yeah. it, it's... But the point is is that the scientists don't even agree on what everything is. Oh, really? And so the research is will all say this is right. showing mindfulness, but this mm-hmm. is actually just about focused meditation. This is about whatever. Okay. And distinguishing just sitting and relaxing versus focus versus mindfulness versus this versus that and then getting measurable outcomes mm. compared to a control group it's proven very challenging. So I'm not just saying it doesn't. I'm not saying it okay. doesn't work. So is there is there any benefit to becoming more future oriented? Yes. Well, well, yes, there is. There is. So so for one thing, um, you know, let's take let's take surprises for example. So my wife loves surprises, and I don't. Who does? Oh, I don't love surprises. <laughs> I don't ever want a surprise birthday party or this what? or that. Okay. I just don't. I just don't care for it. So, but, um, and surprises are nice because you get the surprise. But there's this other thing that. Studies do show that if people, people anticipating something good happening gives them a lot of pleasure too. Yes. Well, that's like there's a whole guy at Cambridge, Wolfram Schultz, who studies the role of dopamine in expectation of reward. And he's demonstrated that if you train monkeys to get a drop of uh, like flavored or sugar water on their tongue Mm. associated with like a cue that Mm -hmm. predicts that, dopamine levels will actually go up when the cue is lit, not when they get the drop of flavored sugar water. Right. And that might be pleasure. We don't know. Right. Yeah. That, I think we disagree on dopamine, but mm, I think... That's <laughs> fine. We'll have, yeah, let's, oh, do- we'll, have a, we'll have to have a dopamine off. Dopamine off. <laughs> I think you'll win. I think Kim I will win. Kim is the neuroscientist, but... But do neuroscientists um, disagree, right? On whether it's... Yes, whether it's fair. Mm-hmm. Whether it's pleasure or, yes. or just drive mm-hmm. and motivation. That's right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all that is to say that... Um, you can actually legitimately get pleasure by from imagining, from anticip- anticipating yes. something. You get to absolutely like you're all going to see your grandkids, and you just enjoy thinking about seeing your grandkids for months. Pre- and then you finally see them, and then it's great too. But if it were just a surprise, you'd only get a day of pleasure. But ah. but but because you were able to anticipate it, you get all that. Now, of course, you could build it up too much, and it can be a disappointment. That happens with holidays. Happens yeah. a lot of stuff. But studies do show that there is some there is some pleasure to anticipation. Now, when you, you when you go to a restaurant and you pre-order your meal, you go online. You ever do this? Pre no. Yeah, you go online. You look at the menu. I don't think McDonald's lets me do that. <laughs> Ew, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, no. You go and you look at the menu and you're like, oh, I'm gonna have the baba ganoush. And then you show up and it's pita. on it's on the table. It's warmed. No, I sorry. I don't mean like actually like pre-order in my head. Oh, <laughs> well, yes, I have heard of that. When you decide, yes. <laughs> Yeah. You go- <laughs> I thought it was the some online app I haven't in- heard of. Not yet. Kim's with it. <laughs> yeah, and then you imagine it, right? That you're going to get this tasty, yummy right. baba right. ganoush. But then sometimes it's a letdown. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it's a letdown, right. right. Yeah. Now, future ori- now, people who are future-oriented in general are better at saving money, losing weight, and they're even nicer to the environment. What? Yeah. So there are there are societal benefits and sometimes happiness benefits to being future oriented. So to me, when I hear stuff like, oh, you should always be in the present moment, like if you're always in the present moment, you really can't ever plan anything. Right. And, you know, so and even or maybe unless you're like a monk living a very ritualized life. 
maybe. I, I don't know what their life is like enough to know if they actually don't need to plan anything, but I think there's got to be some logistics associated with keeping mm. a monastery <laughs> business. Maybe the Dalai Lama um, has a personal assistant. You know, anyway. But, uh, so, so yes, there's a... I, I, I don't think that like being in the present moment all the time yeah. is the key to like all happiness. Fair. That's fine. So how do you become more future-oriented? If you want to so, get there and lose weight and... You you can think about your future a lot. You can think about your future self and picture it as vividly as possible. So uh, I read a, a book about um, AJ Jacobs. He like does all oh, these I know experiments yeah, on himself. Yeah, so he was yeah. trying to be like the healthiest guy in the world or whatever. Yes. I forget what his book is called. But he read that you'll eat less if you look at yourself in a mirror while you eat. So he would have a mirror, like <sighs> a stand, horrifying. like a makeup mirror, and he would like take a bite and then sit there watching himself chew. Uh, for every meal, it's probably right? triggering disgust. Uh, in and he also had and he also had a picture made of him in twenty years, so he could, you know, oh, a, like aged an aged picture, uh, because there are there are there are studies that suggest that you know this can make, get you more in touch and and make you less uh, harmful to your future self. You have a great potential to harm your future self right now. Like you can, we're you all can, dying. Right now, yeah, but you can it, run it. You can you can run in front of a car right now. You can spend all your money right now. You can cheat on your partner. Like there's all kinds of stuff you you could do that would have terrible ramifications in the future, right? And so, the idea is that you right, and the degree to which you don't is to some extent based on your uh, connection to your future self, right? Are there scales? Can you measure? Like, could I answer a questionnaire that? gives me some kind of metric on yeah, how... Yeah, well, you know the marshmallow test? Yes. So the marshmallow test, Kim knows what it is, but I'll tell everybody. So sure. the uh, so you fun. give a kid a marshmallow and you say, if you can wait and not eat it in this empty room with nothing else to do, well, I'm going to give you t- another marshmallow. And if you eat it, you only get that one. And then kids, some kids manage to wait and some kids don't. So something akin to the marshmallow test... It's either a test of willpower or connection to future self. I think they're correlated, perhaps, but um, I don't really know. But yeah, so uh, you know, it's a good question. It's all frontal lobe, man. I don't remember how all the frontal lobe, and it predicts like academic success. What size of frontal lobe? Uh, No, not necessarily, but the 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 connections of the frontal lobe to the lower brain circuitry, right? Like the the number and thickness and all that of connections. Sure, like the white matter integrity, uh, right? Yeah, and all, uh, yeah. Quantity and quality, right? right? right. Um, yeah. So, but yeah. I, like, as uh, somebody who earned a PhD, we would have waited years for the marshmallow, the second marshmallow. Yes, right? because I, that's why my hats off to anybody with a PhD because it is like the, it the is, ultimate in delayed gratification. It is absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I would, yeah. Um, so all this is. Do you remember that terrible book called The Secret? Oh yeah, I do. I do. I didn't read it, but I know enough about it to criticize it. Ugh. <laughs> So bad. All right, so this is a terrible book called The Secret, bestseller, and it suggests something called the law of attraction. And this, law, Kim's laughing. The law of attraction is that if you imagine something vividly, then uh, it it'll to happen you. to you. So you imagine having money, you, money will like enter your life. Okay. Now, what's what, what part of what makes this so persuasive is that there's a version of it that's right and there's a version of it that's wrong. What? Okay. What do you mean? There's a version. There's a there's a sense in which it works and a sense in which it doesn't. Okay, so okay. Um, now science doesn't think that thinking thoughts 
about what the world could be like will affect the nature of the world outside of what your body can do. However, thinking about the way the world could be, the way you could be, will affect what you do. Right. And your attitude right. towards things and the opportunities you look for and what the yes. connections you see and all that. Sure. And in that way, there could be something to it, okay? Um, but one one thing that has been scientifically shown is that exactly how you think about what the future should be like makes a big, big difference. So, and I'll say what it is and I'll explain it with an example. So if you imagine achieving your goal, which is usually how people interpret the law of attraction. Like, mm-hmm. I imagine if I'm, everyone likes me and I'm rich and I'm... Yeah, well, I remember the one know. example, which is why like Jim Carrey was actually in the movie of The Secret. Yeah. Uh, that he claimed he imagined being rich and somehow he... He imagined and imagined and imagined, and then he made his first million dollars within a year. Okay, or so that's yeah. that's obviously survivorship bias because they didn't interview the person who imagined right. being rich and didn't get it. Yeah, yeah so and he's, and, I mean, and discounting talent and anyway. Well, ta- but also, you know, but, but there also might be something to be said for like that helps you motivate you. So people talk about their affirmations, like every morning you write mm. down, "I will." publish my book this year or this or that and of course that alone writing down isn't going to make the book just get published but it might help you refocus your priorities or something but what the study shows is that if you think about the goal being achieved it saps your motivation to achieve the goal here's why what here's why so imagine something i will invite my listeners to imagine achieving something that you really really want so it could be a job or, or or a lover or i don't know what and if you, that's basically fantasizing. Right. Now, why do we fantasize? Because it feels good. Right. Why does it feel good? Because part of our mind thinks it's real, and we're just enjoying the emotion of a fa- of a made up thing. Yeah. But note that mo- the main reason we do anything is to get the pleasure of accomplishment. So if you actually get that pleasure before you've done it. It there, can sap your motivation to actually. There go are ahead some and get exceptions it. to that. Drugs. If you ima- like active users, if they imagine themselves smoking crack, it drives the craving to actually go out and obtain it. Now that's interesting because I know that imagining eating ice cream sundaes makes people eat less ice cream. And that and the theory is the one that I said. So if what you're saying yeah. is true, then I think there was a mystery to be solved there because there, because pe- because when people imagine vividly eating an entire ice cream sundae, part of their mind feels satiated. Right. Right. Maybe it's the. D- mm. So we'll have we'll have to look yeah. into that. Mm-hmm. Put okay. a peg in that. So right. so but back the stu- to, what the study the did was they had a bunch of undergrads and they had some ima- some of them imagine doing really well on a test, and they had the others imagine studying for the test. Huh. And then a control group. And and the people who imagined doing well in the test did worse than the control group and worse than the people who imagined working hard. Yes. Because they sort of already enjoyed the fact that they did well in the test. Or uh, fatigue, right? So, you know, research on imagination or imagining like people who play sports. Yeah. They imagine themselves actually up at bat if they're a yeah. baseball player. It actually, there's data showing, like they put them in fMRI, they're actually activating the same circuits in the mm-hmm. brain mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. active when they're physically engaging in that action. Yes. So maybe there's something about imagining the studying where you're engaging the exact same circuitry as you would be if you were studying and you're fatiguing those 
that circuit. So well, that if, that, but if less... that were the case, you would study less. That's but what I mean. Do, but they don't. They study more. If you imagine studying... I thought you said that it's... No, no, no. no. If, you imagine, if you imagine doing well in the test, you get a worse grade. If you imagine studying, you get a better grade. Oh. So the way, the way to use happen. the law of attraction huh. in a way that works huh. is, is to sit there and think about all the things you'd have to do to achieve your goal. So even if I'm tired, I'm going to exercise tomorrow morning. Even if I am offered chocolate, I'm not going to eat it. Even if uh, I don't feel like it, I'm going to study. Imagining yeah. that stuff yeah. helps you. If, you. if you sit there and imagine I'm thin and I got a great grade on the test, that makes it worse. I get it. Right? So that's, that's, that's like where the secret can lead people, can actually make it worse. Like it's worse than, so it can be worse than nothing. Back to that whole idea of like the more vividly you, you imagine, the more vividly you think about the future, the better it is. Right? The better. better, the better it is. What do you mean? Well, like you're more likely to achieve your goals, right? So if you're more vividly, descriptively thinking about future scenarios, like oh, if you know tomorrow I'm on a diet, but if tomorrow if I go to this party and there's chocolate cake there, I'm not going to eat the chocolate cake. Versus just thinking about the party and I want to stay on my diet. The the trick is you got to think about the activities you need to do and not the achievement of the goal. That's the right. difference. So uh, it does, the vividness isn't isn't I, the vividness mm-hmm. works. Against you if you're if you're visualizing right. goal achievement. I understand. Yeah. Right. So I got it. Hmm. anyway, so the the moral is don't buy the secret. Don't buy the secret. It's terrible. And uh, you know, imagine what you have to do. You know, I talk to writers who who will say like, if you got an idea for a book, like a fiction book or whatever, there's this urge to tell everybody the plot. Yeah. And they say, don't do that because then you'll have gotten the story out. You need you need to not have anyone know the story. So that you have to write it to get it out. Got it. You know, because when you tell someone the story, they're like, oh my God, that sounds so great. You should write a book. And you do that 25 times. After you do that 25 times, you might not want to write the book anymore. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by CKCU, Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and made possible in part by Occam's Razors giving your scientific theories smooth, close shaves since the 1300s. Minding the Brain's theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.